from the Theology of the Body Institute, this is the Ask Christopher West Podcast. Hi, podcast listeners. Well, hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode. I wanted to share with everybody, I had a really interesting conversation on the YouTube channel with a friend of mine named Bruce Etter, and the link is in the show notes if you want to check out the conversation that he and I had in our YouTube studio. And what was particularly of interest to me, he was unfolding some of the real riches of the writings of Flannery O'Connor. Okay. Bruce Etter is um, the founder of the Aliosius, I hope I'm saying Aliosha. Aliosha Society. And he is uh, a real scholar of literature. Like he has really, what's the word? Divin dove? He has dived? Has dived. Has dived. He has divin dove dived into <laughs> literature as his profession, as his love, and his favorite author of all time is Flannery O'Connor, one of the greatest female Catholic writers of the last century. And what was of particular interest about that to me is I, from a distance, admired Flannery O'Connor. I'm, really, I'm not really wired in my brain to read literature. You know this about me, mm -hmm. Wendy. I have tried many times to read literature, and my brain kind of locks up. I am wired to read theology and spirituality books. It's amazing. And sometimes like biographies or yes, autobiographies. That's right. Biographies, autobiographies. I like that genre. Yeah, it's interesting how you are a reader, but but it's like as you said your brain is yeah. wired for certain kinds of reading. We're sitting in my office here where we record our podcast surrounded by lots of books. Lots of books, most of which I have read. And I they're really, not they're not they're, fiction. They're not novels. <laughs> they're not fiction, right? So the reason I've admired Flannery O'Connor from a distance is because my mentor and professor, the late great Monsignor Lorenzo Albacete, he was a huge Flannery O'Connor fan. And I'm also interested in Flannery O'Connor because of my love of Bruce Springsteen's music, and Bruce Springsteen is a huge Flannery O'Connor fan. So I've always had this Oh, she's out there. <laughs> yes, yeah, she, yeah, she's she's got something. <laughs> and the conversation I had on our YouTube channel with Bruce Etter really kind of broke open the treasure of Flannery O'Connor. And I came to see from a new perspective why Albacete loved her, why Bruce Springsteen loves her. And I don't know that I'm going to be actually able to read her stuff myself, but I have a, a, a deeper appreciation. <laughs> she uses... She uses these very strange and and disturbing images and stories, like corrupt people who are Christ figures and um, really disfigured people to to demonstrate physically disfigured people and grotesque situations, grotesque characters to to paint a spiritual picture. And this is this is right up my alley in terms of theology of the body, the body and only the body is capable of making visible the spiritual and divine realities. And when, when Flannery O'Connor uses some grotesque character, uh, she's, she's saying this physical grotesqueness is a sign of our own spiritual maladies. And, and I love what uh, Bruce Etter said, that she was speaking the gospel, she was proclaiming the gospel to a world that had become deaf and blind to it. And when the world is blind to the gospel, you have to write in really big letters. And when the world is deaf to the gospel, you have to shout. And so that's kind of the interpretive key for understanding mm. her story. So I don't know. I just thought I'd share that. I, I think people out there listening to our podcast will really enjoy this conversation I had with, yeah. with Bruce Setter. So check out the link in the show notes if you want to dive into that. You know what? I'm going to dive into that. I, As you know, when you were recording, I just was able to tune in live for maybe the last 15 minutes of it, which I enjoyed. But afterwards, you told me, oh, no, it was, you have to go see the earlier part. So I will, I will do that. And I have to say, of all the conversations I've had with many wonderful guests on our YouTube channel, 
This was my favorite conversation to date. It was it was just fun. We had some good laughs. We had some deep conversation. And I didn't even say this to our to our podcast listeners. This guy's not even Catholic. Mm-hmm. He's an elder in the Presbyterian Church. And that is all the more fascinating to me that as a Presbyterian, he loves the thoroughly Catholic Flannery O'Connor. Fascinating. Yeah, it is. Hey, do you want to update us on anything going on with the Tubi Institute? Sure. I am about to head to World Youth Day um, at the beginning of August, World Youth Day in Portugal. If you are going, any of you podcast listeners, if you're going to World Youth Day, please come see me and my esteemed colleague and dear friend, Mike Mangione. Uh, We will be presenting our Made for More event. Uh, Mike Mangione is our resident artist, musician, and uh, uh, the director for our live events and We do this event around the country and around the world called Made for More. It's a multimedia presentation with, what's that reminding me of? (laughs) Veggie Tales. Veggie Tales. (laughs) It's a multimedia. You you call this a multimedia event? (laughs) It's a slide projector and a a bed sheet. (laughs) Sorry. That's the way my brain works. Weird things pop into it when I'm speaking. What was I talking about? About Made for More. Made for More at World Youth Day. We're going to be doing it three times for obviously English-speaking audience. So if you are going to World Youth Day or anyone you know is going going to World Youth Day, make sure you check out the program of events for the English speakers and come see me and Mike Mangione and this multimedia event. <laughs> and also, uh, we are getting down to the wire on anybody who wants to come on our France pilgrimage on the river cruise. We only have a few rooms left, so... They're going to sell out if you're like been on if you've been on the fence and you're like, uh, should I do it? Should I not? Now's your last chance, really, to do it. So, the links below in the show notes. Very good. Would you like to hear a question from a patron Let's of the Duty Institute? This question is from Natalie. Hello, Natalie. Thank you so much for your monthly support of our work. Can't do what we do without people like you. Thank you, thank you, Natalie. Natalie says, hello, Christopher and Wendy. Thank you for all the work you do for this podcast and for spreading the TOB message. I have a question regarding gender roles and children. Growing up, I was very much a tomboy, and a lot of the wounds in my femininity came from my mother telling me that the things I liked to do and wear were, quote, man things, and that I should have more girly interests, like my sister's. This led to me feeling like I wasn't really a true woman. Mm, mm, Had mm. I grown up in these times, I'm sure I would have been convinced that I was born in the wrong body and was meant to be a man. Oh, wow. I'm now happily married with a beautiful little girl, and we're hoping to have more children in the future. I don't want to make any of my children, male or female, feel that they're not truly their gender because of what they like. I don't want my little girl thinking she's not a real woman because she likes climbing trees and riding dirt bikes. Likewise, I don't want my little boy thinking he can't be a man because he enjoys baking or dancing. My question is this, though. Are there some activities, clothes, or toys that should be kept exclusively to one gender? I would tell my little girl that she's still a girl, even if she wants to wear camo pants and plaid shirts, but would I let my little boy wear a dress? Should I let my little boy play with Barbies? Should I let my little girl shave her head? Part of me wants to let children do whatever they want, regardless of their gender, but there's also part of me that feels like there are some things that are not appropriate for both genders. What are your thoughts on this? What a great question. Well thought out, well expressed. Uh, Natalie, I'm really impressed with your heart with your your concern and i i share all of what you shared like i share the the question it is a question so in order to find truth we have to i find it helpful to first talk about the extremes to avoid and i think that's exactly where you're going um it would be an extreme well, let me, let me rewind and say something about gender roles in general, right? Gender roles flow from the truth of the difference between male and female, but sometimes 
oftentimes in our culture, they, the roles that flow from the gender distinction itself, male and female, he created them, the roles that flow or the cultural, we could even say cultural baggage that gets attached to those, the gender differences can be and often are exaggerated and not rooted in truth. For example, this idea that, you know, men should never bake or men should never uh, be a nurse or men should never, what was the other example she gave? Baking uh, and dancing. Or dancing, right. Uh, I remember this, was, I'll, I'll tell this story. Uh, this was maybe 15 years ago. We had a male, well, a male. I was about to say a male ballerina. This shows my stupidity, right? A male ballerina. There's no such thing. A ballerino. He was a ballerino, right? Mm -hmm. A male ballet dancer. Ballet dancer. Mm -hmm. And we do this thing at the end of a course where, uh, you know, and it grew out organically of the way we do courses where people are getting in touch with their hearts and they want to express what's going on. And it just kind of naturally grew out of what we do that when we celebrate at the end of our week, we do a talent show. And this ballerino, this male ballet dancer, danced this ballet for us. This was, again, about 15 years ago. It was awesome. Mm. It was awesome in so many layers and levels. And, and pr probably the most powerful thing about it was breaking these... Uh, rigid st stereotypes of, of gender roles. Uh, here are all these men in the class who had been, we, throughout the week, we were getting in touch in deep ways with the true, authentic, divine plan for man and woman. And it was exemplified in the power and strength and beauty of this ballerino dancing. Now, in another context, let's say, a secular college campus, or even a Catholic college campus, mm -hmm. um, if if a guy said, I want to be a ballerino, he's going to get all kind. Oh, at least in the culture I grew up in, you know, I can't speak to what's going on in college campuses today, but that that boy, he, and he told me the story, uh, this ballerino told me the story of being bullied as a kid, being mocked, because he had this love for for the ballet. That just comes from these exaggerated stereotypes and exaggerated roles, ex stereotypes, fears, um, a kind of machismo f uh, idea of masculinity that dance itself is a threat to masculinity and some other man who likes to dance the ballet is a threat to my masculinity, so I dump all of my insecurity and fear about my own masculine identity on him, and I bully him, and I make fun of him. and So th that comes from disintegrated humanity. That comes from fallen humanity. That comes from really messed up stuff. And the culture, I, I would say, in some ways, has been addressing that, so on the on the one extreme we have this suppression of what is considered sissy in a boy or whatever to dance. Uh, the, the, we we need to correct that error. That's an extreme. But then the culture, in trying to address those errors, has also gone to the other extreme and said a boy can even be a girl or a girl can be a boy. I mean that's the other extreme of of error. What is the truth? The truth is that God made us male and female. And the fundamental purpose of the difference of male and female is precisely so that male and female can come together and bring the next generation into being. Right? This is not a footnote. The sexual difference is not some addendum to the human project. Without the sexual difference, there is no human project. Mm. Right? The gender distinction itself, the very word gender comes from that Greek root gen. We see that same root in words like generous, generate, progeny, genealogy, genitals. It means to produce, to give birth to, right? Before the modern world became so utterly confused, the word gender always meant the manner in which you generate new life, right? And we need to safeguard the gender difference precisely so that society can be organized according to that call of male and female to become one organism and generate 
the next generation, right? Male and female actually have the organs. We are organized for each other, literally organized for each other, meaning we have the organs that allow us to become one organism and generate the next generation. So, I would say proper gender roles flow from a proper understanding of gender itself as the fundamental organizing principle of society, right? And there is nothing contrary to the fundamental organizing principle of society in a male loving the ballet. There is nothing contrary to that fundamental organizing principle of society. And again, I hope people are understanding what I mean there. Male and female are literally organized for each other because we have the organs that allow us to become one organism to generate the next generation. Mm -hmm. Right? So, I would say, again, and I'm just kind of, this is this answer is kind of flowing out of me as I'm thinking on it uh, in, in real time as I'm answering this question, that when it comes to cultural expressions of gender, what we need to avoid is any cultural expression of gender that would blur the fundamental organizing principle, right? And I would say that if a girl is dressing like a boy to the extent that one can no longer recognize her as a girl, or that she is in some way, by dressing that way, denying her role in the fundamental way society is meant to be organized, and she is meant to live her identity as a woman, that would be a problem. And I would say the same for the boy. If he is dressing in such a way that the fundamental truth of his being a male is now blurred, that would be a problem. But we have to avoid exaggerations of the difference and stereotypes that have no real bearing on that fundamental organizing principle, right? We would traditionally consider, you know, like being a school teacher or being a nurse, like women's work. Uh, what does that have to do with the fact that she has a, a, a womb and, and a man has testicles, uh, you know? Ovaries and testicles. What 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 does that what bearing does that have? I mean, there is a way that a person who is a woman will teach and be a nurse that is different from the way a person who is a man will teach and be a nurse. And I would say we need the gifts of both men and women in both of those mm -hmm. uh, professions, right? So, what is the purpose of the gender distinction? How do we safeguard that fundamental purpose? How do we organize society properly around that difference? That needs to be safeguarded. And all exaggerations on one side or the other, uh, that would, on the one side, we might emphasize this machismo maleness and the girly softness to a, to a degree that has no real bearing on reality. And then on the other extreme, we might blur the distinction in, in such a way that we can no longer see and recognize the difference and organize society around that. So, there's my, you know, in real time answer to that, that question. I think those are the parameters. Wendy, what are your thoughts here? Uh, yeah, I think I love how Natalie's drawing from her experience yeah. of having been just not affirmed in her femininity because of her interests. And yeah, I think yeah, yeah. that that's, that's such a problem in, in our society that you know, people think we're kind of progressive, but we're actually starting to tell people yep. it's not okay for a girl to have those interests. Like Natalie said, I would have been told That's right. That's I was right. really a boy. <laughs> or it's not okay for a boy to have those interests, even though he is a boy and he has those interests. So we've tried to resist those stereotypes, but now we're falling right into yeah, their we've, pit. Yeah, it's just really sad. Um, and I'll just share a, that, um, you know, we certainly have gone through different things like this with our kids and just to... to Examples I just would want to share with our listeners both happened in the same hair salon <laughs> with different children for me. So one of our sons, we were in the hair salon to get a haircut, and and he was describing a look of like an, an actor that he liked, that he wanted his hair to look like. And he's showing me a picture. And I'm looking at this son, and he's, you know, young enough that he hasn't kind of had that 
that maturing body shape that kind of says man. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's mm-hmm. still a young guy, like, I don't know, nine years old or something right. like that, with a young face and a young body. And I'm looking at the hairstyle. He's looking at it on a, an adult man, and he likes that hairstyle. But as I'm processing it and imagining it on this young son, I'm realizing it's not. It's going to look like a girl because of that his body hasn't changed enough yet right, to communicate right. man for sure. And so I, I tried to explain that to him, that um, I love this hairstyle, and I could definitely see you having your hair like that after you've grown up some more. Interesting. I don't know the story. Yeah. If, I, if I do, I forgot. Yeah, but I told him, but right now, I'm concerned if you have your hair this way, that people will not realize you're a boy because of you know the stage of development you're in. So, can we do something similar to this, but that says you know more clearly to people that you're a boy? So what I what I think is interesting there is just the the instinct to say I want the world to know you're a boy, mm. and that's I think a proper instinct because you are a boy, yeah. and to fail to be recognized as a boy is is a problem in terms of the way the world is organized. Similarly, with our one of our daughters, there was a time when she was probably I don't know like six years old or something. She'd spent some time with a cousin who has really short hair, and we went to get a haircut. And when we're there, she's telling me, "Oh, I want my haircut to be like my cousin," but this was an adult cousin, an adult woman, and she does have very short hair. She's obviously a woman. It doesn't right, right. cause any confusion, but I'm looking at my five-year-old daughter and thinking she doesn't realize, like, she's not going to look like a girl anymore at her age. So, similar just conversation with her about, like, I love that cousin and I love her hair. At your age, That's it's going to cause confusion that you don't realize and you don't want that. You know, they're always a little disappointed, but yeah, there's also yeah. just that trust that I really love them and I'm looking out for their good that they they can receive it in that way that this isn't a rejection of your desire, just a caution that you you're too young to realize how it will it could play out in people perceiving you and and you wouldn't want those results. So to gently explain that to them and then, you know, get a different haircut that everybody agrees on was was what we did i'm i'm struck by natalie's story that she was as she described a self-described tomboy is that was that the term mm-hmm. she used yeah and and the i i just feel a tenderness towards your heart natalie that your mother was not able to affirm your femininity in the the interest that you had and I don't know to what extent they went, and maybe your mother had uh, an exaggerated concern that people would know you're a girl, or maybe she fell into those stereotypes. I, I would welcome the opportunity, if it, if it ever occurred, to sit down with you, Natalie, and hear more of your story, and maybe to be able to speak more, more in depth to it. Um, I, my best guess would be your mom probably was exaggerated in her understanding of how my daughter should behave and uh, that she needed healing in her understanding of what a woman is. Um, But it might also be worth looking at from your own childhood, what was it in you that, that identified more with the activities or the dress of boys? And was there something off-putting to you about, you know, the way girls behaved? All of those things we can bring the Lord into those memories and he can shine such beautiful lights on our hearts. And I would, I would just invite you to do that. Say, Lord, come into my memories. Do you have a memory, Natalie, of the first time you felt maybe not, um, not inclined to join the girls in your neighborhood in their activities and thought, oh, I wish I could play baseball with the boys or I don't know, you know, I'm reading into it, but are there memories like that? Do you have a first memory of when your mom offered some maybe exaggerated analysis of your dress or behavior? Did it wound you? When did it wound you? All of those things can be open to the Lord and to the Blessed Mother. I would invite you to, to bring both Jesus 
and the Blessed Mother into those memories, because here we have the perfect masculine and the perfect feminine to shine a light into our own lives, our own family histories, our own autobiographies, if you will, and they can point out where the wounds are and bring that healing that we really need. And I'm, I'm so glad to hear you've grown into a woman who loves being a woman and a wife and a mother. Mm-hmm. Um, that's just beautiful. And, and oh, what a tragedy. What a tragedy that you said, not that you said it, but the, the acknowledgement is the tragedy that in our world, if you had been raised in this world, you would have been put into this funnel where because you had those interests or those, um, in, you know, the, that disposition, oh, that means you're a boy. It's such, pardon my Polish. It is bullshitsky. Uh, it's just, and it's ruining, ruining lives, ruining futures. If you had been put into that program as a, a young girl and been put on puberty blockers and then gone through all the procedures, you would not have been able to be married and have children. Mm. Most likely, that's the tra- and that's what the that's why we know this is diabolic, because the end goal of all the so-called gender reassignment is an all-out frontal attack on what gender is, because gender is the manner in which you generate new life, and in the very name of quote gender identity, we are we are wrecking people's ability to generate new life. That's the end result of these procedures. Your gender is utterly hacked and attacked and nullified, neutered, unable to generate new life. That comes right out of the devil's playbook. Uh, Lord, we ask that wherever this agenda is, is reaching in with its tentacles into the lives of, of young and vulnerable boys and girls, mm. uh, we ask that you come and do your mighty work to crush the head of the serpent, and undo the work of the enemy, Jesus. We trust in you. We trust in you, this all-out attack on gender. You have it in your hands, Lord, and you are going to work a mighty redemption of the human body. This is your promise and your pledge, and we trust in you, Jesus. Thank you, Natalie, for for sharing that. You've given me food for thought here, and uh, I know I was kind of, um, as I said, I was answering in real time, and I'm beginning to formulate some new ideas just based on uh, the intelligence of your question. So thank you for that, Natalie. Mm-hmm. Our next question is from a listener named Gil. Hi, Gil. I'm in a relationship with a woman, and we both want to get married eventually. Unfortunately, we have had sex with each other. We have gone to confession. Can we continue to hope that our relationship will lead to a holy marriage? Yes, 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 yes. Should I say it one more time? Yes, Gil. My brother, my brother, my brother, my brother. Here's what I'm hearing in your question. I'm hearing in your question a fear that your sin or your weakness or your frailty disqualifies you from holiness. Mm. That is a lie from the pit of hell. If sin and weakness and the fallen human condition disqualifies us from the journey into holiness, well then guess what? Nobody would make that journey. Mother Teresa never would have made that journey. John Paul II never would have made that journey. A saint is not someone who never sins. A saint is someone who, when he or she sins, opens to God's mercy, gets up, and continues on the road. Then we need to let that sink in. And and here I'm kind of paraphrasing a saint, Saint Jose Marie Escriva. I don't know if I'm saying that right, but the, the Opus Dei saint the founder of Opus Dei. I just read this recently, and it really struck me. This is a from memory. I don't have it directly in front of me, but this is definitely the gist of what he was saying. A saint is not someone who never falls. A saint is someone who, when he or she falls, gets up by God's grace and continues going forward. Right. So, there you go, my brother. That's the journey of holiness. You have fallen, and guess what you did? You got up, you went to confession, yes. 
you opened yourself to God's mercy, and you are on the journey. And I'm, I'm reminded, <laughs> it's just, again, this way my brain works, connects with movies and stuff, but I'm reminded of this really beautiful scene in the movie Rocky Balboa, the one that came out in 2006 when Rocky's much older and his son is now in his mid-20s or late-20s, and, and uh, his son is really struggling with some stuff, and, and Rocky has this kind of pep talk with his son, and he says, uh, you know, life is not about how hard you can hit, it's about how hard you can get hit and keep moving forward, keep moving forward. So that, that's what I'm hearing for you, my brother. You got hit hard here, right? But you've gotten up. Keep moving forward. And brother, don't, be, don't, don't think that being a saint means being perfect, right? Saints are not perfect people. Saints are people who have opened all of their imperfections to God's perfect love. That's sanctity. That's sanctity. Keep going, brother. Wendy, what are your thoughts here? I, I'm just thinking of your um, a couple of your books that could be helpful oh, yeah. to Gil and his girlfriend, possibly Good News About Sex and Marriage, or Theology of the Body for Beginners, or even Fill These Hearts. Yeah, I'm thinking of um, the book in which I tell all those stories of my own oh, need for mercy. Patient, love is not. patient, but I'm not. Right. I feel like, but what's... Oh, oh, let me just share that. Oh, I'm sorry, ahead. Wendy, to interrupt. But I think, I think that the subtitle of this book is going to be, a, especially, it's going to ring a bell for, for Gil. Gil. Mm-hmm. Um, the subtitle of Love is Patient But I'm Not is Confessions of a Recovering Perfectionist. And Gil, it takes one to know one, but I'm hearing some, a strain of real perfectionism in, in your fear. So I would, yeah, really recommend my book, uh, love is patient, but I'm not re- confessions of the recovering perfectionist. The thing that's just striking me is that as you've had this experience, it's something, you know, with one another. It's something that is going to take some time to allow the grace of that confession and absolution to permeate your relationship and help you to understand more the meaning of the joining of the man and woman's bodies. Because our our culture has assigned one meaning to it, and and the, the message that we want to share is not, hey, you broke a rule, but, but that you haven't understood what Amen. you're called to communicate to one another in this way, and how essential it is that it is communicated within marriage, otherwise it's not honest communication is lying to one another. And I think that kind of trying to heal from that experience more deeply will involve an an acceptance of like, the Lord is merciful. Yes, he wants us, but he wants us to grow through receiving his mercy in a new understanding of his desires for us, that they are good desires, that he wants the best for us. He doesn't want us just to accept okay, I'll give that up to be try to be better. But actually, I want a desire to always speak the truth mm. in our relationship, in our affection, because I, but I need to learn more about what that means. Mm-mm. So that's, that's my hope for Gil and for his girlfriend, too, that the occasion of grace that they're in right now would be one of learning what it is they're called to communicate why this gift of of the union of man and woman? Why did God do this, and what is his purpose? I love, Wendy, the way you said it's not— the message here is not that you broke a rule. Right. And then what did you say after that? It's, it's that you're you, a call to learn how to communicate right. rightly the language of your body. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you use that language of the body expression, that's but that right was, was, that's what you were getting at. Yeah. Uh, Gil, here's, here's <clears throat> another way of saying the same thing. Um, I don't like this term premarital sex because it makes it sound like there's this, if you do it before this point, it's wrong. If you do it after this point, it's okay. And that language plays right into a failure to understand the language of intercourse. It's not like you you get married and there's some magic trick that suddenly makes something that you would have done yesterday a sin, but you do it today and it's great. 
no, 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 no. You didn't have the capacity before you got married to express what intercourse is meant to express. Because intercourse is meant to express the very language that God wrote into our bodies is the language of free, total, faithful, fruitful love. And that's what the marriage commitment is. The priest or the deacon will ask the couple standing there at the altar, have you come here freely to give yourselves to one another without reservation, uh, wholeheartedly? Do you promise to be faithful all the days of your life? Do you promise to receive children lovingly from God? Yes, 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 we do, we do, we do, we do. Then sexual intercourse is meant to express with the language of the body the very content of the wedding vows themselves. Sexual intercourse is meant to be an expression and renewal of wedding vows. Two people who are not married cannot express that. So if they engage in the sexual act, it's not an expression and renewal of wedding vows. It's meant to be an expression and renewal of wedding vows. It's not, so you're lying with your bodies. So The real problem with having sex when you're not married is that you're training yourself to lie even when you get married. Remember, Wendy, you and I were doing marriage prep. This was probably 25 years ago. Mm -hmm. And and someone raised a hand in the class and said, and this was after I had put out the challenge to save Mm -hmm. the sexual act for for marriage, and we knew that 95% of the people in front of us are already having sex. And do you remember this woman raised her hand and she said, come on, Christopher, we're getting married in three weeks. What is the big difference between us having sex now and us having sex then? And the answer came to me just in a flash. I said, well, that's exactly the problem. There will be no difference. What you're doing now is not the marital act. And just standing at an altar is not suddenly going to make what you do the marital act. You have been training yourself in in a non-marital even anti-marital expression in your bodies. And that habit doesn't just evaporate because you got married. You're going to bring those same patterns. You've been training yourself to speak lies. And unless there is a radical deep conversion of your heart here, you're going to just bring those same lies with you into your marriage and continue to express, even when you're married, a non-marital or anti-marital sexual act Uh, So it's not some magic trick that you get married and suddenly sinful behavior becomes good. It's that we must learn how to express the language of our bodies in a faithful, marital way. I hope that's helpful. And this is what I unfold in great detail, Gil, in the Good News About Sex and Marriage book, which Wendy already recommended, and I would would second that. That would be a great read. Mm -hmm. And and since you and your your girlfriend, you've already said we want to get married, uh, here's what I'd recommend. I would say get the good news about sex and marriage and get love is patient, but I'm not, and go through them together. Maybe read them separately, maybe 10 pages a week, and then go on a walk, go to your favorite coffee shop, whatever, and just chat, unpack with each other what you're learning. It would be excellent, excellent marriage prep. Yeah, and I'm just thinking about when we go to confession, maybe not all our listeners are Catholic and maybe don't know this, but... One one of the prayers that we say as the as the penitent, the one who's confessing, is a, an expression to God of a commitment to avoid the occasions of sin in our lives. That's a, that's part of our prayer. That's what we're speaking to Jesus when we're in confession. And so I know that Gil and his girlfriend both spoke those words in their confession, I just see, you know, taking up something like reading together and, mm-hmm. and discussing is is part of putting those words yeah, into amen. action in amen. their lives. Shall we go on to the next question? Let's do it. Okay. This is from an anonymous listener. I've been addicted to porn and lust since I was a teenager. Now I'm approaching 40. I'm a, I am married and a father. Around six years ago, I started to fight my addiction with therapy and meetings of Sexaholics Anonymous. I used to watch a lot of porn, but more and more that shifted into fantasies in my head. In my latest setback, I used ChatGPT to increase my creativity in fantasizing stories of lust and manipulating women for my pleasure. Porn sites are blocked, but ChatGPT isn't. 
Fantasies often start when I see a beautiful woman, so I try not to look. I write a message to my ally from my SA group, and I fight the impulse to look because otherwise lust would arise in my heart. You said that it is possible to overcome that stage of fighting and to become free of lust so that the beauty of a woman's body is an occasion of grace. Amen. Yes, I did say that. That sounds attractive, but how do I get there? What have I got to do to change my brain from wanting to look lustfully? How do I progress from avoiding to freedom? And could you explain what you meant by an occasion of grace? Bless you, brother. Bless you, good brother. What I want to say above all is I want to affirm your attraction to seeing rightly. You have caught a glimpse here, brother, of a new way of seeing, a new way of thinking, a new way of experiencing the beauty of the human body. You've caught a glimpse of it. And, and I, want, I want to encourage you to hold on to that and have hope that with God's grace— only God's grace can get us there. With God's grace, of course, we have to cooperate with God's grace, but even our ability to cooperate with God's grace is itself a grace. It's all grace. It's all grace. And beauty, the beauty of a woman, the beauty of a man, the beauty of the union of man and woman is precisely an occasion of grace. The enemy does not have his own clay. What do I mean by that? It's an expression that if you've, if uh, the listeners out there are familiar with, with my teaching, you've, you've heard me say many times and probably many times on this very podcast, the devil does not have his own clay. What does that mean? The only clay that exists is God's clay. And God looked at everything he made, particularly male and female. He created them, blessed them, called them to their, that intimate embrace, and they were naked and felt no shame, right? He looked at them in their nakedness and said, behold, it is very good. And the Hebrew word for good uh, also implies beautiful. It's the, it's the goodness of beauty. It's the beauty of goodness, right? God looked at everything he made and said, behold, it is very good. Behold, it is very beautiful. Purity of heart is the ability to see the world as God sees the world. Purity of heart, John Paul II tells us, is an entering in to that original good of God's vision when he looked at all that he made and said, behold, it is very good. The enemy has done a number on you, my good brother. Uh, he's done a number on me too. He's done a number on all of us as fallen human beings. We are all in a desperate situation of needing a savior to save us from the pit of hell and you have been there and back my brother because pornography is nothing other than the hellish mockery of the heavenly reality of being made in the image of god as male and female that's what i mean when i say the devil doesn't have his own clay all he can do is take god's clay male and female he created them he take, the devil takes that clay and twists it and distorts it almost beyond recognition. And I say almost, and John Paul II says the same thing, we have almost lost the capacity to see the plan of God for our sexuality. We have almost. And he says the key word here is almost. I add this word almost, he says, because, he doesn't use this expression, but because the devil doesn't have his own clay, Right? Even when that clay is terribly twisted up, which is what pornography is, what's twisted? The good. The good is twisted. So, even in that twisted up pornography, there is some good to which you are attracted. And the pure of heart are able to affirm and recognize the good even in what is twisted up. Tragically, the impure of heart project their own impurity even to that which is untwisted. Which is why when someone addicted to pornography walks into the Sistine Chapel and starts to lust, uh, the problem here is not Michelangelo and the naked art that he painted so skillfully and, and with 
a heart that understood the beauty and sacredness of the body. The problem is that that impure person is projecting all of his impurity onto the purity of the naked human body. So, my brother, all of this to say, there is a path out. I want to, I want to back up, though, to what you said in your question. And you have said you have, maybe you're not viewing pornography as much as you once did, but it does sound from what you, you shared, it does sound like you are fostering a pornographic fantasy life. And whether you're actually looking at the porn or just fostering the pornographic mindset, uh, we, have a, we have a problem here. And, and I'm not saying that to shame you or, or scold you. I'm saying it to just point out that you're blocking yourself. The more you foster that lustful fantasy, you are blocking your ability to see rightly. And everyone in your life, number one, your wife, number two, your children, suffer as a result of that inability to see. Right? Blessed are the pure of heart, for they will see the glory and beauty of God. They'll see it in, in those closest to them. They'll see it all over. Uh, but the reverse is true also. Uh, cursed, in a sense, unhappy are those who are not pure of heart because they cannot see the beauty and mystery of God in themselves, in others, in the world God created. And I want to quote here from a woman I've learned so much from. She, she died some years ago, but her name is Leanne Payne. She was uh, a beautiful uh, evangelical Christian, uh, C.S. Lewis scholar, and she wrote a great deal about sexual brokenness, and, and this came to mind, and I was able to grab this off my shelf as Wendy was reading the question, because I thought of this right away. Leanne Payne says this, an unhealthy fantasy life is a killer. It destroys, it wars against and annihilates the true imagination, that which can intuit the real and is therefore creative. So we have, this is an aside, and this is not Leanne Payne, this is yours truly speaking. Uh, we have this capacity, this imaginative capacity that God has given us. And when we use that imaginative capacity for lustful sexual fantasy, where we, as, as this anonymous questioner has himself admitted, he uses his fantasy life just to, to lust after women and objectify them. When we use our imagination in that way, we are, we are destroying, we are crippling uh, and, and, and destroying the real capacity to imagine and live in the freedom of the true, the good, and the beautiful. What Leanne Payne here says, uh, we have this capacity in our imagination to intuit the real, and that use of the imagination is therefore creative, whereas an unhealthy fantasy life is destructive. And I pick up the quote from Leanne Payne here. She says, when our minds are pregnant with illusion and lustful fantasy, with the lie that disintegrates the personality, and our eyes are set on this disintegration. Now, what does she mean there? Why is lust a killer? Because it ruptures the body from the soul, right? We treat the body as something rather than as someone. When we see the body and soul in their true integrity, we are seeing someone, and we know that it is utterly wrong to use someone. When we treat the body as something, we, we use the body, but that body is actually someone. And in order to, to, to justify using someone, we have to turn that someone into something by rupturing the body and the soul. And there's a name for the separation of body and soul. It's called death. Right? This is why pornography and an unhealthy fantasy life is death-dealing, because by its very nature, it is disintegrating, it is rupturing, it is separating the body and the soul. That's what Leanne Payne means when she says, when our minds are pregnant with uh, illusion, the illusion of lust, with the lie that disintegrates the personality, and our eyes are set on that disintegrated view, she goes on to say, we cannot be impregnated by that which is true and substantive. 
that which unites the personality and makes it one. And not only do we cause this rupture in others when we foster this kind of pornographic fantasy life, we foster the rupture in ourselves. So, brother, I'm not saying this to scold you or condemn you or shame you. I'm saying it to speak truth into you. Inasmuch as you are in the grips of that pornographic fantasy life, you're dead because you've ruptured your own body and soul. But I have good news to speak to you, brother, good news of great joy, good news to give you that will give you hope and a future. Christ came into the world, took all of that rupture upon himself, entered into your death, my brother, entered into your hell, my brother, to pull you up and out of it to pull you up and out of it so that you might also live in newness of life. This is the good and liberating news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this book that I'm quoting from Leanne Payne, uh, from which I'm quoting from Leanne Payne, is a book I'm going to recommend to you right now, my brother. It's a book written by my, my friend and dear brother, Andrew Comiskey. It's called Rediscovering Our Lost Fullness. A Guide to Sexual Integration. It's published by Sophia Institute Press. Now, just listen to that title again. And I, I want this, my brother, to sink into your heart as a hope for your future. Rediscovering our lost fullness. You have had a glimpse of this, my brother. You've glimpsed that there's another way to see, another way to think, another way to experience sexuality. Rediscovering our lost fullness, a guide to sexual integration. I just finished reading this book a few days ago, and it's it's a rich, rich journey into the answer to your question, how do I live this? How, do, how does the beauty of the feminine body become an occasion of grace and not an occasion of sin? Mm. Uh, I, I will commend this book to you as a much fuller answer, but let me say this just as a, a kind of intro to what you will learn more about in this book. And those, again, familiar with my teaching are are familiar with this. There are three choices we have, my brother, when we experience lust. We can repress it, we can indulge it, or we can open it to the power of Christ's death and resurrection. And I mean this in the moment, in the moment the lust comes, in the moment the temptation to fantasize comes. I mean this literally. Get yourself, my brother, in the shape of a cross. Uh, If you're in a public place, well, then get yourself in a private place where you can put your body in the shape of a cross, where you can be cruciform, where you conform your body to the death of the Lord. And you, however you pray it, however it comes out in you, this is how I pray it. I say, Lord, thank you for the beauty of this woman who's come to my mind, or this woman I saw walking down the street, or this woman I saw on my screen, or on the billboard, or whatever. Thank you, Lord, for her her beauty. Lord, I recognize in myself this tendency to treat her, your daughter, and my sister. I see this tendency to treat her as a thing for my selfish pleasure. Lord, I ask you please to untwist what sin has twisted in me so that I might come to see and experience the true beauty and dignity of this woman as an occasion of grace, as a lifting of my heart, my mind, and my body to sweet, glorious, beautiful, heavenly mysteries and truths. Here's the heavenly mystery and truth that woman reveals, my brother. Her body was created by God to be a sign of heaven on earth. What is Christmas? Christmas is the mystery of God taking flesh in the womb of a woman. Why are we so attracted to woman's body? Because it is a fundamental biblical truth, bedrock biblical truth, that God comes to us through woman's body. Did you hear that, my brother? God comes to us through woman's body body. 
woman's body has become God's heaven, God's dwelling place. It's called Christmas. It's also called Christianity. It's also called the good news of the gospel. Satan, with porn, wants to turn woman, God's heaven, into his hell, right? And that's what porn is. But you can come up and out of this, my brother. Get yourself in the shape of the cross and pray some similar prayer and rewind this podcast and re-listen to that prayer and make it your own or put your own words to it, whatever you need to do to pray some prayer like that where you're in the shape of a cross and you're saying, Lord, untwist what sin has twisted in me so I might come to see woman's beauty as an occasion of grace. Now, in that moment, you're going to feel the nails going through your hands. You're going to feel the sword thrust into your heart. You're going to feel the crown of thorns getting pressed into your skull. And then you're going to hear very sweet voices saying something like this. God loves you. He couldn't possibly want you to suffer this much. You come down off that cross. To which you must respond, get behind me, Satan. I think so many Christians fail to experience real victory in their lives in this regard because they come off the cross when it gets really painful. Stay in the ache of the cross, my brother. Stay in that cruciform. And when your hands are outstretched in the midst of sexual temptation, that's a very good place to keep them outstretched, right? Keep going, my brother. This is the path. We die with Christ. Why? Because we're masochists? No. We die to all of our sinful passions, St. Paul says, crucified with Christ, so that we too might live in newness of life. This is the good news of the gospel, my brother. Thank you so much, my love, for just reminding us of that and the saving power of Christ. It's real. That's, uh, I, we all need that reminder, whatever our struggles are in this life, and especially to recognize that temptation to just get off the cross. Yeah. Um, and I, I had this, like these words as a prayer in my heart as you were speaking to our questioner. Uh, just this was refrain was just in my heart. Unto you, Lord, I lift my soul. Oh mm. my God, Oof. I trust in you. Let me not be ashamed. Let not my enemies triumph over me. That just kept coming Glory. to me over Glory. and over again. So, Lord, I lift my soul to you. I lift myself up to you. And I want to uh, encourage this anonymous listener to please take advantage of the resources we have here at the Theology of the Body Institute. This is why we exist, to help men and women like you who are in the throes of these problems and addictions and, and, and corruptions. Um, and I'm not saying that, again, to shame or scold, but I'm saying it to name things with their proper name and to call us into freedom uh, it comes to my mind right now that in our patron community, we have a retreat uh, that I did, that I led with Andrew Kamiski, the author of this book, Rediscovering Our Lost Fullness. Please, my brother, uh, if you don't have the money to be a patron, it's $10 a month. If you don't have the money to be a patron to gain access to that retreat, uh, send us a message in the um, you know, in, in the message board for our podcast, and, and I'll find some way to get you that retreat. Uh, free of charge. Uh, we also have a retreat for our patrons that I did with Dr. Bob Schutz, uh, where we get into sexual healing and integration. Uh, we have a retreat that we did with uh, Father Timothy Gallagher, where we talk about the, the Ignatian principles of discernment, which will be so helpful for you, my brother, as you continue your journey into freedom. Uh, there are study programs on the theology of the body there, like mini courses, but I would encourage you, my brother, to take our full TOB one head and heart immersion course, either online or, or in person. And please kick, click on our course schedule in the show notes to learn more. And if money is an issue, please apply for a scholarship. We, we never, ever want money to get in the way of this message reaching those who need it. And I'm saying that not just to this person who asked this question, but to all our listeners. If you want to take advantage of what the Theology of the Body Institute offers, but you are seriously and financially not able to, to pay for a course or a resource, please let us know. We will find a way to get these resources to you uh, without a financial burden. We'll figure it out one way or another. Uh, and please, will you, will you 
spread this message. I think we had a potent episode today, and you know people who need to hear what we were talking about today. You know people who are in the grips of sexual addiction to pornography, uh, masturbation, and that corrupt fantasy life. Uh, Please hit that share button and get this episode out to other people who need to hear that there is hope and there is real freedom and that every human being is an indispensable, irreplaceable, unrepeatable gift. And we truly, by God's grace, we can become what we are. Ask Christopher West is brought to you by the Theology of the Body Institute with music by Mike Mangione. Christopher and Wendy hope that the information provided is helpful to you, but remind you that they are not licensed counselors. If you're going through serious difficulty, a list of trusted counselors and psychologists can be found in the show notes. 